Ready to enjoy the word together? All right, well, if you would, let's uh, grab our Bibles and let's head for the book of 1 Peter, chapter 2 this morning, church, 1 Peter, chapter 2, and if you need a Bible, just raise your hand. We'll be glad to share one with you. There's a note page in your bulletin. Please get a hold of that, and if I could ask you to silence that cell phone, uh, if you haven't done that, that would be a great thought as well. And church family, as I mentioned earlier, I was on vacation last week enjoying time with my family over the Thanksgiving holiday, and one of the things that we did was rent a a delightful movie that came out recently called Christopher Robin. It's a creative creative takeoff on the, the Winnie the Pooh children's classic where Christopher Robin in this movie is all grown up, and he is reunited with his stuffed bear Pooh and all of his other stuffed animal friends. It's, it's well done, it's clean, it's enjoyable, and it, and it has a good message as well. Now, I had watched with my kids the animated Winnie the Pooh cartoons many, many, many years ago. <laughs> and what I had forgotten, but, was what, but I was reminded of through this recent movie, was just how often Pooh subtly and unpretentiously offers up profound little statements of wisdom. We could call it wisdom for life. And so this prompted me after the film to Google Poohisms. I actually, that was the word, Poohisms, just to see if there was a collection of Pooh's wisdom. And up pops all of these Winnie the Pooh quotes, such as, I always get to where I'm going by walking away from where I've been. Now that's sound wisdom. If you're going to go somewhere, you've got to leave somewhere, right? How about this one? People say nothing is impossible, but I do nothing every day. And I find that doing nothing often leads to the very best kind of something. That's true. That can be very true. The things that make me different are the things that make me, me. That's a good thought. That's good. The funny thing about accidents is that you never have them until you have them. Yeah, yeah. There is no hurry. We shall get there someday. Rivers know this. Yeah. Rivers know this. They're not in a rush. And I like this one. How lucky I am to have something about you that makes saying goodbye so hard. That's good. That's good. Subtle but profound wisdom. Pooisms. Little statements packed with big usable truth. Church family. Our Bibles do very much the same kind of thing. Pack big truth into small spaces. We're reading along and suddenly one verse says it all. Big picture, bottom line, a profound declaration of truth. For example, the true gospel. You'll find the true gospel in one sentence. John chapter 3 Verse 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have 
eternal life. And we say amen and amen. For the futility of, of trying to earn your salvation by your own self-effort, you couldn't do better than Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. And, and for the true identity of Jesus... We can probably not do better than Matthew 1.23. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. We just sang a whole song about that a moment ago. And for a succinct, concise, truth-packed declaration of what a Christian really is and what they're supposed to be doing right now, we would be hard-pressed to do better than 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10 this morning, which is where you are now lying open with your Bible. Here's how it reads. It's the newest portion of our ongoing study of the book of 1 Peter. Peter writes, But you, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. We'll stop right there. Brother, sister in Jesus, Peter is describing us in these two verses in a most powerful, wonderful, profound, but also quite simple way. He's describing you. He's describing me. And, and if we were to take these verses and, and organize them, we can easily break them out as you see them there, see there on your note page into really three questions that we would want to ask of this passage. Who are we today in Christ? How did we get this way? And then thirdly, what are we to be doing because we are this way? Inspired by the Holy Spirit, Peter is going to answer these three questions for us in a most simple and direct manner. So here's Peter, a member of Jesus' inner circle of disciples, the most prominent leader of the early church. And he's writing a letter, if you recall, to Christians living in the latter half of the first century who are being persecuted for no other reason than that they have determined that they're going to trust Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And they're being persecuted for that. And for that, they are now what Peter calls exiles that's how Peter refers to those whom he's writing to in the opening verse of chapter 1. They've become spiritual exiles. Their culture has become a hostile place, and life for these Christians is really hard. Peter writes this letter to encourage them and, and strengthen them. He's kind of like a coach exhorting them to, to stand firm and to not give up no matter how intense the persecution might get for them. The letter is timeless, of course, as is all of God's word, relevant for Christians living anywhere and in any time when the surrounding culture is growing increasingly intolerant 
of the message of Jesus and of those who believe it and desire to share it with others. Our culture is rapidly moving in this direction. And so 1 Peter is definitely a letter for us. It's timely for us. Now, if we were to ask these first century exiles that Peter was writing to what their favorite part of Peter's letter is or was to them, I'm thinking that many would say, you know, it's the part where he reminded me that I belong to God. That the part where he reminded me that I was lost in darkness, but that's not true of me anymore. I'm in the light. And that there is a job that the God of the universe wants me to do right now. That's my favorite part. Peter pours on the encouragement in verses 9 and 10 by telling these Christians who they really are, not how they they might see themselves in the moment, not how their culture might label them in the moment, but who they really are in the eyes of God, and then what God would have them to be doing in light of who they really are. And so we're going to unpack these, these two verses kind of in this way, first by asking, who are we? Brother, sister in Jesus, this morning, who are we right now? Peter reaches back into the Old Testament, specifically into Exodus chapter 19, and he retrieves four blessed and enduring identity traits that God had first ascribed to the Jewish people, but are now, by the Holy Spirit through Peter's pen, being ascribed to every true Christian living in Jesus. Chapter 2, verse 9, Peter says, to encourage these beat-up followers, he says, but you, you are a chosen race, a holy priesthood, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Now, with the word but that opens verse 9, Peter is going to draw a sharp distinction between his readers and those whom he was just talking about in verses 7 and 8 that Brandon taught on last time you were together. Those who refuse to believe in the Lord Jesus, verse 7, who reject the cornerstone with a capital C, who is Christ Jesus, they are destined, verse 8 says, to drip over him and to be crushed by him. But, Peter says, but not you, lover of Jesus, not you, you are a chosen, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a, a holy nation of people for his own possession. Four distinct and enduring identity traits for you, of you, if you are in Jesus Christ by faith today. Peter is describing you. He's describing me. One thing that is true of virtually every human being is that we long for an identity. We need to know who we are and and who we belong to. We want that. And this, of course, is where our family or our hometown or our school that we attend or our workplace provides a, a certain level of of belonging and and gives us a certain measure of identity. And I think this is where sports teams are so appealing. 
for so many people. We sometimes laugh at, at people's devotion to a sports team, but it's real. It's real for them. Whenever the camera pans the, the stands, it's incredible how most, almost everyone is wearing their team's colors or, or their team logo or the jersey of their favorite player. And, and Maria, I know you're cheering over here because I, I chose this picture just for you, but maybe for Joe Esparza, maybe for Mike Sebastian, other Steelers fans. Yeah, yeah. It's going to be a perfect day. Good day for you, isn't it? But people identify with a team because they, it just, it, there's something about that for them. People long to belong to something or to someone. You know, in a sense, we're, we're all kind of like that seventh grade boy or girl who go to a brand new school and they don't know anybody and they're there in the cafeteria and they're holding their tray at lunch and they just want to belong. We just want to belong. We want to be accepted and we're hoping that someone will, will look up and, and they'll, they'll see us and, and they'll motion for us to come and sit at their table. We're all kind of like that. Sadly, one of the curses of living in a fallen, sinful world is that all of the identities that the world offers to us are ultimately going to be disappointing and they're going to be temporary. In the end, even the most meaningful earthly identities, family or marriage, we we don't get to keep those. Death eventually separates us from these places of belonging, these places of identity. Oh, if only there was a, a place, something to belong to that time and death could never take away from us. Something to rejoice in more than our favorite team winning the championship. Better than the joy of our children being successful or, or even the contentment of a satisfying marriage. Oh, if there was only a place that could never take away our identity. A person who could never take away our identity. Christian, who are we today? Who's, whose jersey are we wearing? today Jesus yeah verse 9 who are we but you are a chosen what you're a chosen race that's who you are today if you're in Jesus Christ you are part of a chosen race and we read the word chosen and our hearts should leap within us brothers and sisters because that word says that by the deliberate action of another in this case God himself the God of the universe we have been laid hold of by him in an eternity changing way we have been chosen out of the billions of possibilities available to God he chose you he chose me ephesians chapter 1 verses 4 and 5 for he chose us in him that is in jesus christ before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight in love he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through jesus christ in accordance with his pleasure and will look at those words God chose us 
out of the fallen race of humanity and created a new race called the redeemed of the Lord. His choosing was rooted in his love and made solely on the basis of what he wanted to do. His pleasure, his will. But you are a chosen race. Brothers and sisters, let us never make the mistake that ancient Israel made and think that God chose us because there was something in us individually or personally that caught his eye and merited his choosing. Let us never think that somehow we distinguished ourselves, we merited in some manner his choosing of us. That is not true. It will never be true. Israel thought that God chose Abraham and then them because of them. They thought that in choosing them, God was making a statement about them, how special they were, how differently they were, that somehow their worthiness singled them out for God's favor. They were God's chosen people. But the Lord sets them straight very early on. He says in Deuteronomy 7, 7 and 8, It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you for you were the fewest of all peoples but it is because the lord what loves you he chose you because he loves you god's choosing of israel didn't have anything to do with israel it had everything to do with god right he loved israel simply because he wanted to love israel God set his love upon them because it's God's nature to love. And by doing so, he brought glory to himself in his choosing of them. Had nothing to do with them. And so Peter is saying the same thing here. We are God's chosen people elected before the foundation of the world. This doesn't say anything more about our worth or our lovability than it did about Israel's. It says everything about God's amazing love and that he chose to love sinners and save us in spite of us, right? He created a new spiritual race of people and and sovereignly determined that you and I would be a part of that race. Chosen. Chosen. That's you today. A chosen race. That word should not make us feel proud That should make us feel extremely humble and eternally thankful. Yes? But you are a chosen race. And you are a royal priesthood. Now this too is part of who we are, church family, part of our identity. But I'm guessing when you walked in the door today, you didn't think of yourself as a royal priest. But you are. Now if you were here last time, Brandon was in this passage and he unpacked a truth in verse 5 about the priesthood of the believer. Peter says in verse 5 of chapter 2, You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. To be a part, uh, to be a priest in Israel in ancient times, meant special appointment. It meant 
It meant great honor. It meant that you were going to be involved in serving God, that you were, you were going to have special access to the place where God figuratively dwelt in the holy place of, at the temple. You were, you were shown great favor. You were a priest. Peter calls us, in verse 5, holy priests. Because we have been washed clean from sin's penalty through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. His cross, his resurrection. Revelation chapter 1 verses 5 and 6 says, To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father. That's who you are. You're a priest. But here in verse 9, he says you're a royal priest. A royal priest. We're not ourselves royalty, but we are here in the employ of the king of the universe, in the service of the king over all kings, and that makes us royal priests. We're the king's priests, and he bids us to come near and to to offer spiritual sacrifices, as Peter said in verse 5, to him as part of how we serve him. What does that mean? Well, it means as we, we live our lives, we offer up our lives as living sacrifices every day. Romans 12, 1 and 2. We offer up praise. We, we strive to do good. We, we desire to reflect the character of Jesus in our life. We're, we're generous where we can be generous. We put others before ourselves. We intercede for others in prayer. We introduce anyone who will listen to the truth of, about our king, how he loves, how he died, how he rose from the dead, how he's coming again. You are a royal priesthood. Now that should not make us feel proud, but it should humble us and cause us to be extremely thankful. And then Peter speaks to a third distinctive of who we are. Just as a Christian, every true Christian is part of a new spiritual race and and a new spiritual priesthood, so we are part of a new spiritual nation. And this new nation isn't based on on ethnic identity or geographical boundaries. Every citizen in this nation is is bound by two common things. We are all sinners in this nation, and we have all forsaken allegiance to this world and to Satan, its leader. We have sworn allegiance to a new heavenly king. His name is Jesus And we're part of this nation that he rules. He's king of kings and lord of lords. The apostle Paul, thinking in the very same way that Peter is thinking, says in Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, but our, what's the next word, church? Our citizenship is where? It's in heaven. Our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. How does your spiritual passport read today, if I might ask? If you are in Jesus Christ, how does your spiritual passport read? You don't even have to tell me. I already know. It says at the very top, a citizen of heaven. That's what it says. Because why? Well, you're part of a new spiritual nation. Now, don't miss the radical nature of what this is implying. This nation of God, it has no ethnic distinction. No Jews, Gentiles, Asians, Caucasians, Latinos, blacks. We're all welcome into this 
new nation. Every tribe, every tongue, every language, every people group, says the book of Revelation. We don't immigrate. And we, we don't need to apply to get in. We simply have to believe in the Lord Jesus. And we're part of this new nation. Citizenship is completely by God's grace through our allegiance to Jesus Christ, our King. But you are a a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. And then fourthly, what are you, Christian? You are a people for God's own possession. A people for God's own possession. Of the four identity traits the Holy Spirit gives us here, this one may be the most amazing one of all. God owns the entire universe. All that exists is his. We could say it all belongs to him. And yet here you and I are singled out of all that exists, and whether it's in the seen or the unseen realm, and God says, you're mine. You're mine. Now let that truth marinate for just a moment and see if you can remain unaffected by this identity trait that is true of you, that you are God's own possession. This word possession, it has roots that can be traced back to the practice in, in the ancient, uh, by the ancient kings of the East They would keep a special treasure box or a chest of gold that was separate from the official funds of the state or the royal treasury. This gold was not for roads or for ships or or for buildings or for the military to use. This was the, the king's special treasure. It was for him alone to use. It was personal. It was his personal possession, his treasure. And it may well be that Peter was thinking of that when he says of God that you and I are God's personal treasure. We're what he values and what he holds close to his heart. We belong to him and he loves us with a love that we will never fully comprehend. But unlike those kings of old who may have inherited that treasure or or maybe had it given to them, God pays for this treasure that he has himself with the life of his own son, making us the most costly treasure, the most costly possession that has ever been or ever will be. Now think about that. That's you. That's me. The treasure of God. Check this out. Titus chapter 2 verse 14 says, Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us, to buy us back from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for what? His own possession who are zealous for good works. God says in Isaiah chapter 43, verse 1, Fear not, for I have redeemed, I have bought you, I have called you by name. You are mine. You're my possession, God says. And in John chapter 10, verse 14, 
Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I know, what's the next word? My sheep. My sheep. And my sheep know me. What is implied by that? Ownership. Ownership. God, Peter, Jesus says, you're mine. You're mine. A few verses later, Jesus will say in verses 27 and 28, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life. They will never perish, and no one can snatch them out of my hand. No one can take the treasure from me ever. You're mine. We belong to him legally. We belong to Jesus spiritually. We belong to Jesus eternally. This should not make us feel proud. It should humble us and cause us to be very, very thankful. Just think what these four identifying traits of a true follower of Jesus would have meant to these spiritual exiles that Peter is writing to. A chosen race, royal priests, a holy nation, God's prized treasure, I mean, these exiles, they, they, they felt like people without a country. They, they, they didn't belong anywhere. They had lost all their worldly identity. They, they had lost their geographical identity. Many of them had. Many had lost their earthly possessions. Many of them had lost their family identity as their family rejected them for loving Jesus. They've been cast aside as worthless, less than worthless, traitors to their country, traitors to their kin, for loving Jesus. How would they have felt to know this is who I really am? I'm these four things. Peter encourages them to realize their true and exalted status, to realize who they truly are, no matter what the culture might say they are. And you know, we're encouraged to realize that too in this moment. We are not who our feelings say we are. We're not who our circumstances say we are. We're not who trials or difficulties say we are. Who are we, church? Who are we? Why, we're God's chosen. We're His prized possession, a people of His own. We belong to Almighty God. He has made us citizens and, and, and priests to, to serve Him. And we're part of the only nation that is going to endure forever and ever and ever. God's chosen and holy people. How critically important it is that we never make our earthly identity our ultimate identity. Why is that true? Why is that so important? Because all of those earthly identities will eventually disappear or they will disappoint Make your identity your husband or your wife and death will take them one day. Make your identity your children and their rebellion or their loss will shatter your life. Make your, make your identity your money or your earthly possessions. Then a thief or a fire or an earthquake or a recession destroys you. Make your identity your health or your good looks and an unexpected diagnosis 
or the creeping signs of old age will knock you out. So true. (laughs) So true. All earthly identities are fleeting. And they, they, they keep people in that place of being like that seventh grader in the cafeteria. Longing for a place of inclusion. Longing for acceptance. Where can I sit? Where can I belong? Who cares for me? God says. God shouts to his people. I care about you. I chose you. Serve near me as a priest royal. You're a citizen of my heaven. Sit near me as my beloved daughter, my beloved son. Know who you are. You are my treasure, my possession. I bought you and I will never let you go. You are mine. Know this. Now, we could stop right here. And it would be a great morning of just feasting on God's truth concerning who we are today. It'd be great. A chosen race, royal priest, holy nation, God's prized possession. It'd be great. But flip that note page over for just a moment because Peter wants to make sure that we remember how we came to be all of these four things that Peter just mentioned. Verse 10. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received, say it church, mercy. How did we get to be who we are? The mercy of God. And we never want to forget that. We all have a new identity that can never be taken away from us only and forever because God has been merciful to us. That ought to get an amen, I think. This is a glorious truth that we have been bumping up against from the moment we started this this message together. From the moment we, we began to talk about God having a chosen people and we're part of that people group chosen by God, we noted that that, that we aren't the chosen people of God because of anything in us that made us worthy of being chosen. God simply wanted to love us and he wanted to love us in spite of who we were. We call that mercy. We call that undeserved kindness. We call that compassion. We call it mercy. So on your note page, just a few of dozens of verses that won't let us forget that our true identities are all of mercy, divine mercy. Check out Titus 3.5. God saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his, what church? His own mercy, his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. Psalm 136, 1. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good for His 
mercy endures forever. And how about Psalm 59, 16? But I will sing of your power. Yes, I will sing aloud of your mercy in the morning. In truth, church family, every time Brandon and the worship team lead us in a song, we're doing this. We're singing aloud about our God's mercy in our lives. Because this is what makes us who we are in Jesus. God's mercy alone poured out through Jesus. In fact, at the very end of verse 9 of chapter 2, it is God's mercy that called us out of darkness and into light. Peter says that. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. We all know this if we've been around the church and been Christians for very long, that darkness is often used in Scripture to illustrate the spiritual condition of every person in the world who doesn't have Jesus in their life. They're in the dark. We're in a spiritual and moral darkness. We were born into that, Scripture says. It was Jesus who declared uh, this so clearly in John chapter 3, verses 19 and 20, the night that Nicodemus came secretly to meet with Jesus. Jesus said this. He said, this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. He's talking about himself. And the people loved the darkness rather than the light. That's the truth, Jesus says. Our spiritual darkness is really spiritual blindness. The sun is shining. The light is shining. The truth is all around us. God puts his existence and many of his attributes on display 24 hours a day through what he has made so that no one can say, I didn't know there was a God. Nobody can say that. Our problem is we're blind. We live in a spiritual darkness without Jesus. We don't see. 2 Corinthians 4.4 puts it like this. The God of this world, Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. Blinded. We can't see this glorious, wonderful light. As someone once said, we're like a blind man locked in a dark room looking for a black cat that isn't there. That perfectly describes our spiritual condition before Jesus comes in. All our vanity and our pride and our worldly values, along with Satan's encouragement, keep us locked up in our blindness. It's all we've ever known. We think it's normal, but it's not. And then something happens. There's that day, that moment in your life when the scales fell off of your spiritual eyes. God mercifully calls you out of this blindness, this this darkness, and into a whole new kind of seeing. And we see the light of God's glory through the life and the work of the Lord Jesus in a way we never did before. And we appropriate the truth of Jesus into our life, who he is and, and what he has done. And we receive God's salvation. And in that moment, we cross over from death to life and from darkness to light. Do you remember that moment in your life? Christian, do you remember that moment? Salvation is like a blind man who, who's been blind his whole life and suddenly the, the moment comes when he sees 
for the first time. We once were in darkness, but now by the merciful call of God through the gospel, we live in the light. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6. For God, who said, let light shine out of the darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Are you living in the light? Do you have the light today? You're not blind because Jesus is in your life. Oh, I hope that's so true for you today. Who are we, church? Who are we? Well, we are a chosen race. We're a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. How did we get this way, church? By the mercy of a loving God. And what are we to do because this is who we are? What are we to do? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him. Church family, the moment that we take on this true identity that Peter refers to in the first part of verse 9, the purpose for the rest of our life becomes instantly clear. We are to live to proclaim God's life and love and mercy to anyone who will listen. Would you agree with that? That's what it's about. Our purpose becomes God's proclamation. Verse 9 is our purpose statement. It's our to-do statement to make sure, as the Holy Spirit enables us, that others who are in darkness hear about the marvelous light. We don't exist for ourselves anymore. We don't, we, we, it's not about us. We're not proclaiming our excellencies. We're not praising ourselves. It's not about us. We've been saved for the glory of God. We proclaim him and his saving life. That's our job description. The moment he brings us from darkness into light. In fact, this word proclaim that Peter uses, it's only used here. It's not found anywhere else in the Bible. It's just this, this one spot. It's an unusual word that actually means to advertise. To advertise. It means to, to publish. It means to tell out. And it carries with it the idea of telling something, something that others don't know yet. Advertise, tell out, publish widely the excellencies of your God because of who you are. And that word excellencies, Bible scholars admit this is a hard word to translate into English, but the idea behind it is the ability to do heroic things. I didn't know that before studying this passage. It's the ability to do heroic deeds. That's the word that Peter goes with. And so he's saying, advertise, publish, make known, tell out, proclaim that your God is a hero. Have you ever heard that before? Have you ever thought about that before, that evangelism is basically you and me telling others that God is a hero and that he is our hero? You ever thought about that? The other day, I overheard two guys 
at a restaurant. Guess which restaurant? <laughs> I overheard two guys. I was waiting for a friend to join me for lunch, and I overheard these two guys talking, and they were, they were talking loudly. I wasn't trying to eavesdrop on them, but they were talking lo- lo- uh, loudly about a, a large pot of whales that had become stranded on a beach and how people had come to the aid of the whales and, and this one guy was reading the news feed off of his phone to his friend about this and I heard the, the guy say, and the whale rescuers were heroes. Heroes? Really? Really? Church family, let me share with you another news feed. From Colossians chapter 1. Want to talk about heroes? For he, God, has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. You want to talk about heroes? Let's talk about heroes. Here's two heroes. Worth talking about. A father who would sacrifice his own son to save sinners who don't even know that they need to be saved. And a divine son who would be willing to die a brutal death on a cross, though sinless, and bear the sin of the entire world in himself, though he was not asked to do that by any of us. That's true hero stuff. That's real hero stuff. And we, brother, sister, we have the honor, we have the privilege, but also the duty and the obligation of advertising, publishing, proclaiming, telling out to this people that we live among who are blind and living in the dark, who don't know, we have the privilege of telling them about the hero who rescues. Look at this with me. 2 Corinthians 5, verses 15 and then 18 to 20. Jesus died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God, was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. Does that not blow you away? That blows me away. I don't know anybody in this room who wouldn't feel it was a great honor to be chosen to be an ambassador for the United States. That would be a great honor to represent this country, its history, its power, its ability, its resources, to be its representative. That would be a great, great honor. But to be chosen to, chosen to be an ambassador of the living God who has the ability to transform the eternities of billions of people, giving them heaven and not hell, that is a far, far, far greater honor. Is it not? 
What a privilege. And that is the privilege that is granted to every single one of us. We are His messengers, His ambassadors. And so instead of dropping our head when we have an opportunity to advertise or or publish the one that we represent, which we often do if we're honest, rather than breaking out in a cold sweat when the opportunity to share Jesus comes up with somebody else, rather than looking for the closest exit so you can get away, might we lift up our head and say, I have the privilege, I have the honor of being an ambassador of the living God. He has called me into His service to tell others of His mighty, heroic, saving deeds and how He saved me. And lest anyone think this is about street corner preaching or or obnoxious confrontational evangelism, it is not about that. It's just people like you like me and a church like IBC who know who we are, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's personal treasured possession. And we know how we got this way. Mercy, mercy, and more mercy. And we know what we've been saved to do. Tell those who are in darkness about our hero and how he loves to save. Amen? That's us. That's us. Let's pray together.